five months. That's how long it takes between Mexico's elections and when a new president takes power. It's one of the longest presidential transitions in the world, though a constitutional reform means that next time around, in 2024, it'll get cut down to three months. But this year, the transition has already felt different for a number of reasons. One is that Andrés Manuel López Obrador and his party, Morena, won across the board by a landslide in July, meaning a change of the status quo. He's already been an active president-elect, holding regular press conferences. Another reason is that the outgoing president, Enrique Peña Nieto, is one of Mexico's least popular presidents in history, and he's leaving office with a 26% approval rating. A third reason is that observers have been looking for clues as to whether López Obrador, frequently referred to as AMLO, will be a populist or opt for a more pragmatic route. We got one indication of how he'll govern at the end of October when the transition team held a referendum on a $14 billion airport project in Mexico's capital. Despite polls ahead of time showing most Mexicans supported the project, it got voted down by 70% in that referendum. Only 1% of Mexican voters participated, though. A subsequent referendum on 10 different initiatives, including a train running through the Yucatan Peninsula, saw AMLO winning support for all 10 projects. All this has contributed to a rocky month for Mexico's peso and markets. And that's all before AMLO even takes office on December 1st. In some ways, the honeymoon's over before the wedding. (laughs) because a lot of things have been happening even before he takes office, and and the airport is a perfect example. That's Amy Glover, CEO of Spaceside Mexico, an emerging market corporate relations firm. Still, Glover, a dual national, says that despite private sector jitters about the incoming administration, it remains too early to tell, and that given AMLO's 66% approval rating as president-elect, most Mexicans are excited about what the new government could bring. We'll hear more from her later in the episode. But first, I spoke with former Mexican ambassador to the United States, Arturo Seru Khan, about what we can expect from AMLO on foreign policy. Also, with the threat of an ongoing crisis brewing over migration, what's the outlook for what have thus far been warm ties between Donald Trump and AMLO? The, the question is, when, when does this bromance, when does this bubble pop? This is Karin Zissis for ASCOA Online. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Thank you very much for joining me today, Ambassador. My pleasure. In recent days, we've seen ramped up tensions over the migrant caravan near Mexico's northern border and rumors of a kind of bilateral migration deal between the Trump government and Mexico's new government. Do you think the two sides can come to an agreement and will it work? Look, Karen, uh, I, I know it seems to be uh, self-evident to say this, but we don't know what we don't know. What I mean is, we know there have been negotiations between the outgoing Mexican government and the uh, Trump administration. 
We know that those negotiations as of several weeks ago have now included the transition team. We know that uh, uh, incoming foreign minister Marcelo Obrador, who, by the way, still needs to be ratified by the Mexican Senate. That, that won't be an issue, but, uh, you know, I, I just alert uh, uh, alert to this because um, he may already be engaging formally in diplomatic uh, negotiations with the U.S. without having formally gone through the kabuki of Senate confirmation. But um, we know that they will be meeting this weekend once the uh, Lopes Obrador administration has been sworn in. We know some of the details that were leaked or were, or were announced by, by, by the U.S. administration, but we really don't know what the contours of the negotiation are. Having said this, um, it will depend. I think there are several things that we need to understand. One is that having a continued crisis on the border, whether it's from migrants or potential refugee claimants, um, is a political boon to President Trump. Um, he said so uh, himself this past week in an interview with the Washington Post, where he said, uh, and uh, uh, I think I, I'm quoting correctly, uh, these images uh, on the border look very bad for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. He clearly understands the role that fear-mongering um, and dog-whistle politics play, not only in mobilizing his base, but also in putting the Dems into a corner. And that is something that the incoming Mexican government has to open, has to uh, enter any conversations with the US uh, with open eyes. I say this because regardless of what you may be negotiating bilaterally, government to government, there will be a very important domestic component into what the US and particularly the president wants to get from these negotiations. So a lot of what the outcome looks like will be determined by a whether the Trump administration or President Trump, more importantly, continues to stick to his my way or the highway approach to policy or diplomatic issues. Um, if there's a quid pro quo to be had, I have been very critical of what the outgoing Mexican government did in 2014 when it agreed to become a filter for Central American transmigration uh, coming through Mexico without uh, any uh, uh, concessions or a quid pro quo from the Obama administration. Um, and I, I, I would hope that the incoming Mexican government does not seek to appease Donald Trump on this front in exchange for nothing. And the exchange piece of all of this could be what President-elect Lopes Obrador has articulated in a some, somewhat fuzzy fashion, but which does make conceptual sense, which is they've used the Marshall Plan, you know, concept, but uh, which is basically the US, Mexico, maybe others, Canada, need to uh, invest in the long-term institutional resilience and economic sustainability of Central America and potentially Southern Mexico. That is, we, we will not be able to move the needle 
on the challenges and opportunities of transmigration flows in the northern part of this hemisphere if we don't address the structural causes, whether they're economic, which is mainly uh, in Guatemala, and that's why we're getting mostly migrants from rural areas in Guatemala, or whether it's driven by insecurity and weak rule of law, which is the case uh, predominantly in El Salvador and Honduras, where most of the migrants coming through Mexico on their way to the United States are from urban areas, and many of them are effectively um, uh, fleeing because they are scared or they fear for their safety. So if, whether the details of what we've seen, the Remain in Mexico proposal that the U.S. has apparently put on the table, if that is to fly, the Mexican government has to make sure that there's a quid pro quo, which is, okay, we will host Central American migrants that are waiting asylum hearings in the U.S. on the Mexican side of the border if the U.S. is willing to do A, B, and C. And at the top of that list would have to be, in my view, um, a commitment by an administration, which, by the way, has been slashing the budget for aid to Central America over the past year and a half, um, there would have to be that commitment, I think, of the U.S. sitting down with Mexico to really craft a plan to structurally impact the drivers of transmigration of Central Americans through Mexico on their way to the United States. What can't, what can't stand, Karen, is a, a deterrence-driven only immigration policy or immigration agreement between Mexico and the United States. So we'll see. The devil is going to be in the details. We probably won't get a clear sense until the uh, transition team is now in office and uh, incoming foreign minister Marcelo Rav has had these initial conversations as a foreign minister with the full power to negotiate with Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Nielsen starting over the weekend and maybe early into next week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so far, there's been a somewhat buddy-buddy relationship between Trump and AMLO, with Trump complimenting AMLO at times um, and, and an exchange of letters. But some say that that's tenuous. And you've suggested in the past that migration could be one of the breaking points. How do you see the future of the relationship? Do you, do you see there being other issues that could be a, a reason to break up what has thus far been a warm relationship between the two? Yeah, um, I, I always said, and I wrote a Washington Post uh, op-ed, I think the day after, a couple of days after Lopes Obrador's landslide victory um, in the elections in July, which which was that in, in which I said that Lopes Obrador brought to the table something which could be extremely useful and important in his relationship and his future relationship with Donald Trump, which was his political strength. Uh, Trump is someone who, sne who sniffs out weakness. Uh, I think he felt and believed that Peña Nieto was a weak president because of his polling numbers, because of the perception that, um, but by the, because of how the elections played out, because of the general malaise in Mexico regarding the Peña Nieto administration. Um, but Lopes Obrador won with a whopping landslide with majorities in the House and in the Senate, with uh, a popular mandate and a true political power that no Mexican president has had in contemporary modern Mexico. And, and this, this uh, was a 
sign of strength that I said, I argued in that piece, if López Obrador could use to signal to Trump that this could be a way of kicking off a relationship, at least in a different, uh, in a different um, framework. Uh, I think that in a certain way has played out. But what is also true is that I'm also convinced that López Obrador decided early on that the last thing that he needed or wanted was a confrontation with Donald Trump. Why? Because he does not, he does really not care about foreign policy. He basically said it himself during the campaign. He said the best foreign policy is domestic policy. Um, he is not a, a, a he is not a man with a global vision for Mexico or Mexico's foreign policy. His his priorities are his domestic agenda, and I think very early on he de he decided that he did not want to be distracted by uh, a, a clash with Donald Trump, and so he has been bending backwards to avoid a confrontation with Trump. That's what explains why during these very long months of a transition he has said zilch on issues like the separation of minors from their parents, the Dreamers, DACA, what has been going on on the border. Uh, in fact, when he has been pressed by uh, the Mexican press to say something about either the wall or immigration, he has ducked those questions, basically saying peace and love. Um, so the, the question is, when, when does this bromance, when does this bubble pop? And, and I, I think there are two issues that because of the complicated dynamics they entail and because of López Obrador's own positions on these two issues could lead to a challenging uh, moment in the relationship. One of them was migration, which we're already seeing. I think this will be the first big foreign policy test of the López Obrador administration. And the other one is going to be the shape and form of López Obrador's um, uh, public security plan and proposals, including the potential legalization, uh, not of marijuana because um, of cannabis. You've got 20, uh, 29 states in the US that have, uh, uh, that allow its medicinal use. And you've got now, I think nine or nine with what, what happened in November um, that have uh, legalized it for recreational use in the US. The tricky piece of this is that as the Lopes Oral administration was talked about, legalizing cannabis. They've also sort of opened the door to the potential legalization of opium poppy. And, and that, I think, would fly uh, in the face of an administration that has put uh, taking on dr illicit drugs and in particular the opioid crises front and center of their drug control policies. So whether it's immigration, whether it's um, drug control policies, organized crime, law enforcement, these are two areas that could provide early tests to th this, this space in which I think both Trump and López Obrador have tried to place their engagement and the Mexico-U.S. relationship going forward. It's, it's noticeable, Karen, if you, if you see uh, Trump's constant tirades against Mexico, uh, which continue um, every day. Uh, he has not, in one single one of those uh, mentioned the name of López Obrador. He is being very careful in not mixing López Obrador with his Mexico bashing. So we'll see. Um, but but certainly uh, this, particularly the migration piece, uh, which will be on the table, I think from the get-go, the day after the government is sworn in, this will be one of the first big tests of what López Obrador's foreign policy will look like.
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to talk a little bit about AMLO's focus on domestic issues over international issues. 2018 has been a big election year for the Americas. And in recent months, we've seen a lot of comparisons um, between Donald Trump Lopez Obrador, and now Brazil's next president, Jair Bolsonaro, with people drawing comparisons and contrasts. Um, an article in the Financial Times said AMLO is a greater threat to democracy than is Bolsonaro because of the fact that AMLO comes in with such a strong mandate and faces limited opposition. How do you see that? Um, it, it was certainly a provocative uh, um, uh, title to the piece. Um, which does not mean that there aren't relevant uh, arguments to be made in that in, in that piece by John Paul Rathbone of the Financial Times, which is which is basically the checks and balances, and that that has been one of my greatest concerns going forward as we look over the horizon into the Lopez Obrador administration, which is, for all purposes checks and balances in Mexico, whether it's via opposition parties, which have been decimated in Mexico, whether it's between non-existent uh, counterweights in Congress because of the very hefty Morena majority, uh, whether it's uh, because many in the private sector in Mexico have sort of tried to figure out a way to accommodate uh, López Obrador and, and their relationships with the new Mexican government. You, you don't have some of the checks and balances that you do have and that you've seen play a very important role in, in Brazil recently regarding, for example, the Odebrecht investigations and the fact that you have uh, very important business people and former presidents um, who are, because of a very strong and independent judiciary, uh, are being brought to account. So, so there is truth to the fact that um, this piece in particular, but also the lay of the land, points to what I think is one of Mexico's structural Achilles heels, which is a weak rule of law, which impacts everything from how you confront organized crime to um, how businesses operate and how you deal with corruption. And and there, there is this sort of messianic view by López Obrador that because he is a squeaky clean politician, that means that then everything in Mexico is going to follow suit. And that that is a dangerous view because we know that there are structural causes, long-standing structural causes in Mexico that have allowed corruption and the weak rule of law and weak institutions to fester. And, and this, this, will be, this will be a very important domestic challenge for López Obrador in a country where this issue played a central role in his election. Uh, let's not forget that uh, López Obrador was elected in, in great measure as a result of sort of a uh, kick the bums out uh, reflex by Mexican voters. Whereas in some countries around the world, corruption happens over the table. In some of the countries around the world, it happens under the table. Most Mexicans thought that in Mexico, Corruption included the table. And th this this is going to be, there are two or three milestones that will be used, policy issues that will be used to measure López Obrador and his administration. One of them is going to be his uh, mantra uh, as being someone who will confront and, and cut through uh, Mexico's endemic corruption. The other one will be public insecurity, because as of December the 1st, 
uh, every single death related to organized crime in Mexico will no longer be Peña Nieto's or Calderón's, it'll be López Obrador's. And so his security plan and whether uh, the uh, increasing uh, rates of violent homicide, which have broken all records this year and, and last year, uh, if, if those trends continue, um, th there will be many Mexicans who will start questioning um, uh, how he's going to tackle this issue. So, so th th these, these are two issues that I think will play out. Um, I am a bit concerned because those checks and balances in Mexico do seem to be weaker than, for example, again, per the article in the case of Brazil, whether it's congressional majorities or whether it's the very important role that the judiciary has played there. Um, but if, if you were to say what what keeps me awake as, at night as I look at Mexico over the next years, it would be precisely this issue, which is where are those counterweights and those checks and balances that every democracy needs um, to be functional, vital, vibrant, where are those going to come from? And that's a big question. So one thing is there's been a controversy in Mexico over the incoming government's decision to extend an invitation to Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, um, who will be attending along with members of the Trump administration and, and several other presidents. Um, but it'll be interesting to think about how the seating arrangements are going there. Um, what does that invite tell us about how the AMLO government might approach inter-American and foreign relations? I believe that López Obrador, um, much like his, his political and ideological DNA, has a vision of, Mexico for, of Mexico's foreign policy anchored in the 60s and 70s, and a very PRI-driven view of Mexican foreign policy, which is a very Westphalian um, point of view of how international relations work. Um, he has clearly said that he thinks that Mexico should not be intervening in the uh, domestic affairs of Venezuela or Cuba, for example, going back to this this uh, sacrosanct doctrine of non-intervention. Um, so, so I think we are going to see some important shifts, particularly as the, they relate to the, uh, to the Latin American and Caribbean region when it comes to democracy and human rights. Um, whether this means that Mexico will exit the Lima group, which is something that he said at some point or suggested at some point during the campaign, the final stages of the campaign, uh, is yet to be seen. But the other thing that we must also remember is that Morena is a, is a very heterogeneous big tent of very different constituencies. You've got moderates, um, you've got pragmatists, but you've got people who today or even yesterday were tweeting about Fidel Castro and Fidel Castro's legacy in the Americas. So um, it, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, I am a bit concerned that I think that Mexico's timid but um, important steps in speaking out about uh, the erosion of democracy in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, uh, the importance of human rights, how we deal with probably one of the most pressing issues in the Americas today, which is uh, the Venezuelan refugee crisis, which is contaminating um, politics and societies in South America. The, these, these will be very important issues. And, and we may see a much more traditional by the book, 
uh, 20th century approach to foreign policy, much like what we saw during the PRI regimes of the latter part of the 20th century, uh, which, which I think would be a very, very big loss for Mexico's ability to stop punching below its weight in the Americas and in the international arena. Great. I'm going to ask you one more question. You've touched on some of these ideas of looking to the past and, and uh, the historical arc of foreign policy to some degree in Mexico. Um, you yourself were an ambassador during the presidency of Felipe Calderón um, of the PAN, and and you left your post shortly after the current uh, President Enrique Peña Nieto of, of the PRI took office, and now we'll have a third different party in power, Morena, that of AMLO. Um, and, and what I think is interesting is through all of this, you were an early adopter of digital diplomacy um, and had a Twitter account early on. So um, so you've seen how social media has played also a role in, in shifting politics. How have you seen, how do you, how do you see the mood shift and, and the way that um, uh, social media has a played a role over these past uh, nine years that you've been on Twitter and, and the general mood in Mexico? Well, there's, there's no doubt that this was an election, uh, this Mexican election was an election that in many ways was won on social media. I think, I think it's truly the first social media presidential election in Mexican history. Uh, López Obrador led a very savvy social media operation, which I think um, uh, explains uh, not only the socio-demographics, but the profile of the voters that voted in favor of López Obrador. Um, but there's also the dark underbelly of this, which is that we also saw, to a lesser degree, certainly than what we saw in the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., we also saw the same phenomena of disinformation and of bot farms polarizing and um, dividing uh, Mexican public opinion. Um, and, and this, I think, and I fear, will be a constant of politics and public policy going forward. Um, in many ways, this is sort of the toothpaste paradox. Once you've squeezed on the toothpaste, it's very hard to put it back into the tube. And the question here is how, given the role that social media is playing in disrupting politics and the public policy uh, process, um, how, how do you create constructive mechanisms for engagement? How do you ensure that these tools do provide citizens with a conveyor belt between political parties, public policy, decision-making, and their own aspirations and demands, um, and, and at the same time ensuring that they are not used as Trojan horses to polarize, divide, whether it's for domestic reasons or whether, in the case of Mexico, that let's remind everyone, by sharing a 3,000-kilometer border with the United States, if you're wreaking havoc from abroad and you want to fundamentally distract the United States, Mexico is a perfect place to do so because we share a 3,000, uh, a contiguous 3,000 kilometer border with the United States and because our security and our economies are so entwined. So th this is something that I think um, both practitioners, former practitioners, public policy officials, the media, this is an issue that's not going to go away that we will have to continue to focus on because uh, it, it could it could be very disruptive. 
um, particularly in countries like Mexico, where, again, because of the lack or the weakness in a lot of these institutional checks and balances, how do you push back against disinformation and fake news or the uh, external or internal manipulation of data and of uh, perceptions using these tools? So it, it's going to be a very important issue for Mexico and for, for obviously for the United States and for the Mexico-U.S. relationship. We've seen this play out, Karen, precisely these past weeks regarding the migrant caravan in Tijuana. Um, if, if you do some forensics of the accounts that were mobilizing people in Tijuana against the Central American migrants, it leads down a very fishy rabbit hole connecting a lot of those accounts to bot farms uh, and trolls that were used in the U.S. in the 2016 election, that were used in Mexico to polarize during the presidential election of July. So th this is this is something that we have to keep our guard high and, and to monitor. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for taking the time to speak with me today. It's a great pleasure, Karen. Thank you. That was former Ambassador and America Society board member Arturo Serracan in Washington, D.C., Check the podcast notes for his Twitter handle and follow him for his latest articles. Next up, we hear from Amy Glover in Mexico City. She has over 20 years of public affairs and business experience, and she's a columnist for Millennio. You can get a link to her columns in this episode's notes. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Amy. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Great. And you recently wrote a column in Millennium just after the U.S. midterm suggesting that we'll see greater political polarization in the United States. So as AMLO takes office, how do you think Mexico compares when it comes to polarization? Are we seeing the same sorts of problems here? Yeah, it's a bit different than in the U.S. context, frankly, um, as a dual citizen I think I have a good window onto seeing that. And I, I think the polarization in the US is much more dramatic because it cuts along. It's almost become not even political more. Now it's personal. It cuts across gender lines, racial lines. In, in the case of Mexico, um, I think a lot of people feel that there has been a greater polarization in Mexico, although I think it's less. If you look at the approval ratings for Andres Manuel López Obrador, who will take office on December 1st, he has an approval rating of 66%. So I think what we're seeing here, however, is the more well-to-do classes feel very much outside of the game at this point. And so when you see opinions in the paper and the opinion of the private sector, it's very much, I think, a sense that we've now lost control over, over the narrative. But if you look at the overwhelming um, victory that, that AMLO had, um, I, I think still the majority of Mexicans are giving him the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I was looking at an El Financiero poll this morning that looked at uh, how Mexicans overall see AMLO and how he's going to handle different issues and uh, that he, how he's going to, uh, is he going to improve um, in these areas or, or are things going to get worse? And on everything from the economy to human rights to corruption, 
the majority of people respond that they think things are going to get better. So it's interesting exactly because of what you're saying, that there, we, we hear kind of two sides of the story. I have a related question on that. Um, at five months, Mexico's presidential transition period is one of the longest in the world. And we've spent much of AMLO trying to get clues about how he will govern. People are always like, is it, are we going to get the populist AMLO or the moderate AMLO? And there was a referendum he held about a month ago on whether or not to go ahead with Mexico City's new airport, which may have been the biggest clue of all. And the project got voted down. And there was a lot of controversy around that referendum. We've had more since then, as you know. Um, since then, we've seen the peso and Mexican stocks take a hit, along with reports of AMLO spooking investors. Do you think this is a sign of what's to come, or is it still too early to tell? I think it's still too early to tell, and I think you pointing out the length of the transition has been an institutional problem for Mexico, but it was particularly um, marked this time because López Obrador announced his cabinet you know, during the campaign, in fact. So in previous changes of the guard, so to speak, you don't know until about this week, until about a week before the president takes office. So in some ways, we've almost had, you know, the honeymoon's over before the wedding. <laughs> because a lot of things have been happening even before he takes office. And, and the airport is a perfect example. And I think it's an example for which he decided to take uh, a position that the private sector did not like, I think in some ways showing that he has this interest in, in governing for all Mexicans. And I think that has created nervousness, particularly in the financial markets who tend to take uh, more short-term views. I think it is still too early to tell. I think there's some very good people who will be collaborating in the new administration. Um, and Mexico is just too big of an economy to really ignore. Um, and if you look at Mexico comparatively, um, particularly with Argentina, I guess now with Brazil, some, the markets are actually looking at the Bolsonaro government as perhaps something positive for business. Um, but I still think you know, Mexico's critical relationship, commercial relationship with the U.S. and Canada will be something that's helpful moving forward. Mm -hmm. I know you kept a close eye on the U.S. midterm elections from here in Mexico. Uh, what does the Democratic victory in the U.S. House mean for bilateral relations, as well as for the USMCA, which is the name of the new NAFTA? Well, I think right now the U.S., in many words, like Mexico is living a, a moment of internal reflection. Things are very much uh, looking inwards. Um, so I think the Democrats will be very reticent to give President Trump a victory of any kind. And of course, um, they have stronger ties with the um, labor unions, and unions are not totally convinced by this new agreement, despite the fact that there were provisions put in place for um, you know, $16 an hour jobs in the auto sector in Mexico, as well as other protections for, for workers in Mexico. So it, I think it's going to be much more complex um, than it would have been had Trump been able to pass it through a Republican Congress. Mm -hmm. One thing, I, you, you mentioned Jair Bolsonaro in mm -hmm. Brazil, um, and it's clear that 2018 is there's a particular mood going on in the Americas, right? Um, we have uh, dramatic changes in elections. 
As someone who has been observing Mexico and in Mexico for many years, what do you see as some of the, the big changes between the feeling ahead of this inauguration and the last inauguration under Peña Nieto? Yeah, I think in many ways we see globally kind of a, a right-wing populism taking place. And I think Mexico is actually an exception to that. In Mexico, if you look at its political history and the history of the involvement of the military and the government, it's completely different than what you see in South America, for example. I do think a lot of Mexicans, the majority of Mexicans, are excited about what this new government could mean. I think the expectations, as you pointed out earlier, are very, very high on a variety of issues, so it will be difficult for López Obrador to meet those expectations. Um, that said, I think if anybody knows this country and, and every corner of it, he does. And, and he knows how to pull the strings and how to move things forward and how to conciliate interests, very much kind of in an old style PRI way. You know, then again, I think he talks a lot about, and people find it a little bit Pollyannish, about peace and love. Um, which is a different narrative than a Trump or Bolsonaro <laughs> narrative. So, um, so let's see where that takes us. That's why I sometimes disagree with people who say he's fomenting these divisions. Yes, he has used words to kind of discredit the upper classes like the fifis and whatnot. But then again, you know, let's face it. I mean, Mexico is a country um, with too high of a percentage of people living in poverty. That is the majority of the population. That does have to be tackled in equality. Um, so I think it's important to remain engaged as civil society and not discount the possibility for positive change before we even get started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did want to ask you a question because I, I know that on your Twitter account, you have in your profile that, that you uh, are a big supporter of gender equality. Uh, which is, I was very excited to read. Yes. <laughs> and um, one thing is that early after the election in July, there was a lot of optimism here in Mexico about women being elevated to positions of power in Mexico. So given that the new Mexican Congress nearly has gender parity and a large portion of AMLO's cabinet will be made up of women, we're, we're, there was a lot of positive news around that. But then in recent days, AMLO announced the name of who will be in his business council, and there were no women in the list, as a lot of people noted. So how do you see the outlook for women in leadership in, in Mexico? I actually think women have made huge advances in, in Mexico in recent years, and I'm very excited to be pushing this agenda. I'm working on a project called Women on Boards 2020, which we're going to launch the Mexico version here. Um, in the new year to trying to push for greater gender diversity in the private sector. Because as you point out, there have been a lot more strides made in the public sector than in the private sector. And I think um, there has to be, you know, in discussing this with chambers of commerce, there has to be some self-regulation and, and a plan, a co concrete plan to how we can have greater uh, equality there. I was just in Yucatan and I was in Merida over the weekend and had a great experience there talking with um, women leaders in, in Merida. Um, and Yucatan, interestingly, has always been kind of at the forefront 
of the feminist movement in, in Mexico and the new governor of Yucatan decided to have a, a cabinet with 50-50 uh, gender parity. So I think Mexico is making important strides at the same time that I also just wrote an article about violence against women in Mexico and it's a severe problem, um, women being killed for being women essentially, um, gender and hate crimes. So I think at the same time we're moving and advancing in terms of great, generating greater political and economic power, there's also a backlash. Do you, do you think there's a reason why it's been easier in the public sector than in the private sector? Yes, because there are quotas. So, uh, you know, Mexico, I think, should be proud of the fact that it has so many amazing women participating in politics. I mean, if you look at the percentage of women in the Congress, I think it's close to, it's not complete 50-50, but, you know, it's one of the most gender diverse Congresses in the world. Um, and some people question, you know, are women prepared for this? And I would say, well, if you look at the record of men, I would say certainly yes. <laughs> we can't do much worse. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing about your new project next year. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This podcast was produced by Louisa Lemmy. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. Go to musicoftheamericas.org to learn about upcoming concerts. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please write us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.